welcome back to our study of uh, 1 Timothy. And uh, we're in chapter 4 today, and we're going to continue. Uh, it's a great privilege to be, to be teaching all of you. And um, I think after each session, which will last about 30 minutes, we'll have a question and answer so that our thoughts, um, so that we can kind of focus in on what we've learned in that first 30 minutes. Uh, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 4. And I would like for us to go ahead and uh, read, uh, starting in verse 6. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, for it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance, with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you knowing that you hear us because we come before you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, if it was not for the completeness of your salvation, we would have no hope. We thank you so much that Christ went full circle, that he accomplished absolutely everything necessary for our eternal salvation and our temporal well-being. We thank you that he sits enthroned at your right hand. Lord, it is a marvel of marvels that our brother sits there, flesh of our flesh and bone of our bone, and yet fully God and in absolute control of every aspect of the universe. Oh Lord, when we look within and we see our many failures and weaknesses, we realize, dear God, that we need a, a savior who is like us in, in our flesh and yet perfectly God in the most complete sense of the term. Father, we thank you for Christ. We praise you for Christ and we hope and pray to honor Christ in our ministry. I pray for the young ministers that are hearing me today, O oh God, 
please drive these great truths home, not only in their heart, but in, in mine, that we would be godly men, that we would be examples of those who believe to those who believe. Father, please help us. The world is so dark. An army is amassing. Nets are being drawn around us. Oh God, help us. Be light in the midst of darkness. In Jesus' name, amen. Now I just want to do a quick review uh, through uh, 6 through 11. Um, he says, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And pointing out these things, he's talking about in verses 1 through 5, those who would become distracted from the gospel. Those who would put another message in the place of the gospel or even beside the gospel. You and I must teach law, we must teach principle, we must teach wisdom, but nothing, nothing stands beside the gospel. Nothing is the gospel's equal. And if you teach things like principle and law, you have to understand that those things without the gospel only bring condemnation. Your people need to be founded upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. It needs to be their strength and their one and only strength. Because if they look to anything else, their heart will fail. Gospel, gospel, gospel. Christ did it all. Christ did it all. It is finished. They are loved. They are adopted. They are justified. And they will make it home. That's what you constantly have to be pointing out. I love to say it this way. The law shows us we're sinners and sends us to Christ. Proverbs and principles show us we're fools and sends us to Christ. Now he goes on and he said, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. You'll be no good to God's people unless you're fully fed. Do you understand that? You must be fully fed as a minister. Because of our busyness, because of us always thinking of strategy, because of us being pulled away by pragmatism, we do not feed as we ought to. And we must. Do you know, it's, a, it's kind of a strange statement until you think about it, but when you're on an airline and you're traveling with children, what do they tell you? When they talk about the possibility of, a, of an accident or the loss of oxygen in the cabin, what do they say? Put the mask on yourself first, then put the mask on your child. You would think it would be reversed, but you see, if you have trouble putting that mask on that child, there's no oxygen in the cabin, then eventually what's going to happen? You're going to pass out because you don't have a mask on and your child is going to die because you weren't able to put the mask on them properly. It's the same way in the ministry, men. You must be strong. Do not expect the congregation to be stronger than you. So you must be constantly nourished on the words of the faith. And this, this is Bible reading, but it is also the great doctrines of the faith. So he says, nourished on the words of the faith and the sound doctrine which you have been following. You know, you really can't know scripture until you set out to follow it. That's one of the great truths that I've learned over my life. 
that if you just teach on a subject, um, it's not enough. If you just study and teach, it's not enough. You have to practice it. I'm able to teach people how to shoot a longbow properly. <laughs> not because just I've read books on it. Not just because I teach people, but because I actually shoot a longbow. And, and it's the same way with you. When you begin to um, put these truths in practice, you begin to see the temptation. You begin to see the struggles of the flesh. You begin to see the attitude of the world. You begin to see how it's problematic to live for Christ in a godless world. And you're able to adjust. You're able to do things to strengthen yourself. And then you're able to communicate that practical knowledge also to God's people. So you must be following this. Not just to be an example, but to be able to teach. I've heard men teach, even biblically, on certain subjects, but their teaching seemed a bit hollow because it, 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 it seemed that they themselves had not lived a life of practicing it. Okay? So, now he goes on, verse 7. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. How do we determine if something is a worldly fable? And here we need to be very, very careful. How do we do that? Well, first of all, if you're going to determine the validity or the uh, falseness of something, you must have a standard by which to judge it. And the only standard, the scriptures itself say this, but the Great Confessions, the Westminster, the 1689, there is only one standard by which every other thing must be judged, and that is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. And if you don't know it, you won't know when you're following a fable. And if you don't preach it, your people won't know when you're following, when they're following a fable. Now, he says, on the other hand, this is a very, very, this is kind of an adversative. This is really coming at you and saying, do the opposite. Do the very opposite. It says, on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Now, this is going to be really important when we get down to our present text. Why? Because we're going to see that not only must you preach truth, you must live it. But in order to live it, you must discipline yourself for it. You know, um, um, only the athlete that is actually going to participate in the sport has to do the discipline. You know, people on the sidelines can talk, they can give opinions, they can even teach. But if you're actually going to do it, they say to become an expert in anything requires 10,000 hours of study and training. 10,000 hours. You need to discipline yourself, not just so that you have a big head, not just so that you can have the right answer, but discipline yourself for the purpose of being pious. One of the, I think, best ways to describe this is discipline yourself for the purpose of becoming Godward. Godward. You know, uh, there's always this statement in English that you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Well, I've never seen that in anybody. 
Um, but I have seen people who were so worldly minded, they were no heavenly good. Do you know most of the, the hospitals and the orphanages and all sorts of social endeavors to help people in their physical suffering ultimately are traced back to a Christian somewhere, to someone who was heavenly minded. Even the abolition of slavery in England and in the United States was pushed by people who feared God and believed that it was wrong because they held to a literal view of the book of Genesis, the first 11 chapters. Do you see? And so if you really want to do good, you need to be heavenly minded. You need to be pious. You need for the law of God to direct your steps like a lamp unto your feet to guide your hands, your ears, your eyes, your mouth. The decisions that you make, you need to discipline yourself. That means that you don't just study something, you practice something. So you study about marriage and you preach about marriage, but are you disciplining yourself in those very principles that you preach? And I want you to know something as an old man talking to young men. Self-deception is horrible. We can so quickly deceive ourselves. We can tell people, you need to pray. You need to spend copious amounts of time in prayer. And then you start one day, you kind of look in the mirror and you go, well, I'm not. Or you need to love your wife. No matter what, unconditionally, no matter what she throws at you or what she becomes, you need to do that. And then you step back and go, yeah, that's beautiful. But is it what I'm doing? And I, I can tell you this, guys, the older you get, the closer you get to the finish line, the less God is going to allow you to get away with things. Hopefully. If you belong to him, don't think sanctification ends after your first 30 years. I almost feel like it began after my first 30 years. A godly man is a powerful weapon in the hands of God. Never forget that. Discipline yourself. But let me ask a question. I asked this before. How are you doing this? What are you doing? Are you just kind of doing a overview survey of reading a few passages a day. What are you doing? We talked about this today in a, in a meeting. Um, some of the guys that are the mission coordinators here at Heart Cry, and it's like, how many of us have taken every text in the Bible that has to do with the eyes and then thought, sought to discipline ourselves to do only what the scripture says with our eyes or with our words? or in our marriage. So he says, verse eight, for bodily discipline is only of little profit. It is, it is good, especially, you know, there was a time even Jonathan Edwards went out and w took walks, rode his horse and chopped wood. Most of us uh, aren't doing that. And so there does need to be a regiment, a discipline, uh, I understand a person has a different build, uh, different maybe issues with thyroid. Some are, have a tendency towards weight, others a tendency towards thin. 
uh, I understand all that. There's no need for a minister to be attractive in his body, but he should be healthy in his body so that we can live long, so that we can work hard. For bodily discipline is only little of little profit. One of the things that I find, it's one of the few things I find about athletics that to me have, has any value at all. And that is not as an example, but a counter example. When I see how much dedication some athletes show to win a gold medal that's not even gold, or to put a basket, a, a ball through a basket, or hit a baseball with a bat, or a, I, I, I'm ashamed. I've got a book coming out here in a few weeks, and one of the things it says when you're, you find yourself apathetic toward eternity and toward the gospel, just look at those who have more zeal toward temporal worldly things than you do for heavenly things. So for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. I believe that the primary sphere here, he's talking about salvation in general, but also I want you to see something, men, that I've, I'm not able to reconcile theologically. I just know that it's true and I hold it as true. And that is, we will be fully accepted in Christ. When we cross over, when we die, when we pass through heaven's gates, so to speak, he won't be waiting on the other side with a scowl. He didn't die for that. We will have an abundant entrance. Yet at the same time, everything we do here on earth has an impact on eternity. Not only for others, but even for ourselves. And I don't know how that works. I just know that it's true. Oh, I think that we need to be very good stewards of every moment. Oh, I think we need to give ourselves to our calling. Now, it goes on. Verse 9, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. That means, hey, hey, listen, <laughs> listen. I'm not talking about a small thing. You know, I mean, the least commandment or the least verse in Scripture is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. So when he says this about a particular thing he has said or is about to say, you and I need to pay attention, don't we? He says, for it is for this we labor and strive because we fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially for believers. First of all, Men, as ministers of Christ, your life should be defined in a great part as laboring and striving. Do you labor and strive? We don't need another lazy minister. <laughs> Are you lazy? Well, then you, you need to stop it. Uh, are you complaining that ministry is so difficult? Well, it is difficult, but don't complain because you were warned beforehand in Scripture that it would be difficult. All warfare is difficult. One time someone said to me, well, I don't see why you're so wore out. Your job is not more difficult than the president of the United States. And I said, the president of the United States is fighting men. Ministers are fighting devils. <laughs> so we labor and we strive. 
Now, I want you to hold this in a balance. Um, there, there may be some of you who are listening to me and you need a kick in the seat of the pants because you're just not working as hard as you ought to. Yet on the other side, there are those who labor so much that they die young. Um, or they have, they, you know, because of the way they labor, they do damage that cannot be repaired to their bodies, to their minds. And what we want to do is we want to have a balance, don't we? That means work when God says work and rest when God says rest. And I do believe there's a principle in the Sabbath. Um, I've heard that parts of Europe now have gone to a four day work week. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but the Bible has a six day work week. But that seventh day, it was a day of rest. And I think at least there is a principle there. Do you know why um, Israel was judged so severely because they violated the Sabbath? I mean, what's really the big deal? Well, when you boil it down, I believe it's this. To, to violate the Sabbath was to declare your unbelief in God and God's character. It was thinking this. If I don't work more than God commands, then the whole thing's going to fall apart, which basically means I cannot trust God enough to rest. I am afraid that throughout my life, many times I have committed that sin. Uh, and we can cover that sin up in what we call devotion or piety or zeal. Um, the fact of the matter is, um, heart cry has now existed since about 1988. I cannot explain how it got started and I cannot explain how it continues and I cannot explain why it hasn't fallen. I just know it wasn't me. So why do I strive so much? Why do I worry so much? Um, it's unbelief. Um, I was sharing with a group of men today something that I, I've come to believe, that dependence upon God and trust in God can actually be considered two different things. Yes, they are related, but they're different. Uh, you can depend on God. For example, I can uh, depend on God in saying, in, in, do, in actually never making known our financial needs never raising money. We don't. We don't raise money. We don't make known our financial needs. Um, that is depending on God and not depending on Pharaoh or, you know, Assyria or the arm of the flesh. But you can depend on God without fully trusting in God. You depend on him because you believe it's right. But the real question is, are you resting? Are you resting? Are you at peace? Because if you're like I am so often, depending on God and yet full of anxious thoughts, you're not really resting. If you're not really resting, you're not really trusting. Do you see that? He, um, what, what you need to understand is that he's sovereign over everything. 
Absolutely everything. He is more sovereign. I know, you know, about every one of you that are here would consider yourself, oh, you know, I believe in the sovereignty of God, you know. Um, yeah, but you don't understand what you're saying. Um, in about 25 more years, you'll understand more of what that means. But you still won't even come close to grasping what it really means. He's been in charge of every aspect of your life from before you were born. He was in charge of your life and intimately and, and just exceedingly involved when you were an unbeliever. He's been over everything, absolutely everything. And he will guide you home and he will protect you in the ministry. He will. He'll not only deliver you, but he'll deliver you even when your own sin is what got you in trouble. He's sovereign and you can trust him. Now, he says, for it is this, for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God. Now, I want you to think about something. Let's look at how we could say this in a wrong way. For this, we labor and strive because our ministry is really showing uh, evidence of fruit. For this, we labor and strive because, man, church is really growing. For this, we labor and strive because all the people in the church really love me and they really want to follow my preaching. You see, if, 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 if that's the reason you labor and strive because you fixed your eyes on those things, you're not going to be very consistent because if you're a church planter or you're trying to, you know, renovate a church or you're trying to, uh, you know, even just continue on with a, a church that's mature, you're going to find that there's all kinds of reasons to not labor and strive. There are all kinds of reasons just to lose yourself in daydreaming or stay in bed or watch television or be on Instagram 10 hours a day. What brings consistency to your walk is that you fixed your hope on the living God who is the one and the only eternal constant in the universe. Please understand me. He's the only one. No one else. No one. Who is the savior of all men, especially of believers. You see, you're going to finish. You are. And you're going to stand before him spotless. Why? Because this is not all this hasn't been done so that you can show everybody how well you ran a race. All this has happened, even the fall of Adam, to demonstrate God's ability to save. He's not going to let you go. He's not going to let you down. Because it would bring uh, bring shame to his name his reputation's at stake not really because he's not going to fail now he goes on he says 11 prescribe and teach these things now I think that's a very very important statement and we're going to look at it now I want to I want to turn to my notes and we're going to talk about a godly minister's character. That's what we're going to do today. I'm just going to make a small introduction, then we're going to uh, 
break off for about five minutes and then start again. But um, the godly minister's character, look at 11 and 12, prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Now, when he says prescribe and teach these things, he is talking uh, about, I believe, in the immediate context is verses six and ten. What is he saying? Keep eternity. Before the eyes of the people, keep eternity before your own eyes. Um, I wish I was your age so I could serve the Lord more. I wish I was your age, but um, if I could be allowed to maintain my view of eternity that I have now as an older man. Um, oh, brothers, please. Um, a friend of mine sent me a picture yesterday of uh, he and I in high school. Uh, we were both basketball players. And uh, I was uh, 17 years old. And it was a picture of us standing there on our team. And then one in, uh, in the hallway of the school. And it, it, in one way it seems like a million years ago. In another way it seems like it was yesterday. Uh, I've lived the majority of my life. Um, I'm arounding the bend nearing the finish line. And uh, eternity is what matters. What awaits you is so glorious, so powerful, so splendid, so beautiful, that ear is not heard, eye has not seen. You can't even, you couldn't even begin to comprehend 1% of 1% of 1% of what awaits you. It's very difficult for us to comprehend what it means that what we do here on earth will impact our own eternity as well as the eternity of others. And so what he's saying here is he says in verse 11, prescribe and teach these things. Both of these imperatives commands are in present tense. He goes, keep on prescribing these things. Keep on teaching. Or another way, keep commanding and teaching these things, not just telling people about eternity, but exhorting people to live in light of eternity. You know, one of the things that is really, really Steve Lawson uh, brings this out, I think, probably better than anybody. Uh, Peter Masters also from Metropolitan. Um, we got so many expositors, brother, that it's like going to some kind of New Testament class. When they exposit on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday, they, they're just giving information, giving information. But you've got to exhort. Exhort doesn't mean that you're angry. It doesn't mean that you're hurting people's feelings. It's urging people, pleading with people, beseeching people. This is important or it's not. I mean, if it's not life or death, go get, you know, go, you know, buy an ice cream truck and sell ice cream. Everybody will like you a lot more. I mean, this is serious stuff. 
This is very serious. I, I've been fortunate to have many friends who were doctors. And, and I'm astounded at some of, uh, at their discipline. You know, you don't just become a doctor. You become a doctor and then you spend the rest of your life studying. They have to study so much. Why? Medicine is evolving new techniques. Uh, all kinds of things. And they have to be at the top of their game. Why? Because if they're not, someone could die. Well, what about you and me, brothers? It's far beyond death. Death is not the big deal. It's simply a transition. Eternity is a big deal. And so it's not just teach people about eternity. Uh, it's not just, you know, get them to read a book by <laughs> by Randy Acorn or something. And, and I love that guy. Uh, uh, I would like to meet him one day. He seems like a wonderful man. But it's not just about doing that. You need to do that. You need to talk about eternity, heaven. But then there's urging and exhorting people with regard to what does that mean? You know, it's kind of like that Francis Schaeffer, you know, how then shall we live? What are we going to do now? What are we going to do? Um, let me uh, just show you a passage that really intrigued me the other day when I was reading. Hold your place and look at 2 Corinthians 9. Now, 2 Corinthians 9, he's talking about God blesses the giver and he's talking about gathering of the, the offering for Jerusalem. And But, but look, in, look in verse 13, chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians. He says, because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God. Now, here's the phrase. And I wrote there, wow, beside it. Your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ. Do you see how powerful this is? They it's basically saying that by doing this, they would be living, OK, as a correct response to their profession or confession that they believe the gospel. It's so very, very powerful. And it's, it's very similar to what we find in Ephesians 4, where Paul says, you know, walk in a manner worthy of your calling, of your vocation. You know, live in light of this stuff. And, and that's a question that you need to ask yourself constantly, but you also need to ask the congregation. Hey, congregation, you know, sometimes <laughs> I, when I've preached, I've said, hey, hey, look at me. Look at me. Are you actually hearing me? And then when I'm alone, I have to ask myself, am I hearing me? This is big stuff. So he's saying live in light of eternity. Now, I want to before we close, I want to look at two things living in light of eternity. When I say that, probably most of you knowing knowing a bit about me, you know, you're thinking that I'm going to be saying live in light of eternity, work, 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 strive, 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 strive. Yeah, that's true. 
But what about this? Live in light of eternity. Rejoice. 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 I mean, in just a little while, you're home. Perfect. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. The godliest man that I ever personally knew was Bob Jennings, uh, preached in a M&M chapel in Missouri. And um, oh, what a godly man. What a godly man. A, a, a very, a peculiar, a speckled bird, a very unusual man. And uh, he was told that he was going to die, and he had the type of cancer that the moment they tell you, you, you might as well buy flowers. You're not going to live very long. He ended up living for several months, I think a year and a half or maybe more. They even would bring him into the church, into the chapel on a bed, and he would preach laying down. Um, He's so godly, but he said something that shakes me to the core, and I would have to say the same thing. He said, if I could go back and change anything in my life, he said it would be joy, the expression of joy. Young men, let, let me give you a little secret, okay? I know we're going on longer than I said, but You can be devoted, in a sense, godly, and that you're separate from, from the world, hardworking, pursuing Christ and everything. But you can be like a deadly venom to everyone around you, especially your wife and your children, if joy is not a marker in your life. I heard one man who was very staunch, very serious man. Some would even call him a legalist. I heard him say this one time as he studied families over the years. The one thing that he has found, the one common denominator. In strong families has been the joy of the father, the expressed joy of the father. Don't carry your burdens home. They weren't meant uh, for your wife and children. You should walk into that house with joy. Like a light. And not only your family, but those around you. Martyrs are really, it's good to be around a martyr every once in a while. But 24-7 martyrdom, it isn't going to help anybody grow in piety. Joy. So he says, keep commanding and teaching these things. And I've written here, the minister must constantly focus himself and his congregation on godliness, on eternity. This is what I call the blessed monotony of the faithful preacher. He's always pointing them to the gospel. He's always pointing them to eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray, dear God that you would use it in the life of these young ministers.
to help them, to make them, Lord, especially in the times that come, to be lights to your people. In Jesus' name, amen.